Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to be with you again this uh, Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing again in our study in the Sermon on the Mount this morning uh, in a message that I'm calling Meaningful Prayer. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. Uh, so before we begin, let's have some meaningful prayer before the Lord. Lord God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the Lord's prayer which you have given us, Lord, which gives us a model of how we are to pray, Lord, that we would uh, exalt your name, that we would revere your name, Lord, and we would pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done, Lord. Uh, may that be so. Lord, may your Holy Spirit come now and help us uh, with these words of Jesus, Lord. Help us to understand them and make them a priority and apply them to our lives, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You know, when I was in grade school, uh, we used to stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance every day before school began, and that was probably true for a lot of you, too. And most of us can recite it from memory, so I invite you to join me. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's amazing. We all still remember it because we've said it so many times that we've memorized it and it's ingrained in us. But I can tell you that as a 10-year-old kid, standing and reciting the Pledge of Allegiance meant absolutely nothing to me. Uh, I was still asleep from uh, just having woken up probably 10 minutes ago. And so uh, that's kind of how uh, words can be if we repeat them often and we don't really think about their meaning. Uh, too many times. Um, kids in school today, of course, should be taught the Pledge of Allegiance, and they should be taught its origin and what it means and why we say it, but if they're not, uh, then it would be just an exercise for me where we just stand up, we say these words, and sit back down again, and it doesn't mean anything to us because they're words without thought, without meaning, or without feeling. Well, Jesus was concerned that people prayed without thought, without feeling, and without meaning, too. I remember last week that we talked about how the scribes and Pharisees would stand up and they would pray loudly in public places, hoping to be noticed. And Jesus said, well, that's not the way that I want you to pray. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did, and Jesus called them hypocrites for it. So that's one way that we're not supposed to pray. And another way of meaningless prayer is endless repetition, where we just say the same thing over and over and over again. And so that's another way to pray without any meaning, and uh, we want to look this week about what Jesus said about that before we actually look at the Lord's Prayer, as I hope that we learn to pray meaningful prayers this week. So let's read verses uh, 7 and 8. <clears throat> and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So meaningless repetition. The Gentiles would pray the same thing over and over and over again, repeating the same phrases and the same words. And the reason that they did this was because uh, they prayed to gods who were, uh, they were busy out partying, they were eating, they were drinking, they were indulging in other kinds of uh, pleasure, they were sleeping, they were engaged in war, they were doing all kinds of things. They weren't paying attention to uh, their prayers, and so uh, they continued to pray these prayers repetitiously over and over again on the off chance that perhaps uh, one of their gods might happen to be paying attention to them at that one particular time. So that is endless repetition. The Gentiles didn't understand that the one true God loves them and longs to hear their prayer, and so they had a wrong uh, perception of who God is. And so Jesus 
uh, exposed this wrong way to pray, and he corrected them uh, so that they would pray the right way. Now, this word for, uh, for meaningless prayer, uh, some translations say empty phrases, is the Greek word batalageo. And this word is used only here in the entire Bible. And in fact, it's not used anywhere else in all of Greek literature. And so it's hard to find out what a word means when it's only been used one time. Uh, the experts tell us that it means empty phrases, meaningless repetition. And so it's used here just to describe a prayer that is full of words, but has no thought or meaning uh, behind those words. In the church that I grew up in, I used to have to go to confession uh, every now and then, and uh, after my confession was done, uh, the priest would tell me to go out and uh, sit in one of the pews and say, 10 Our Fathers. And I can tell you that when I went out and sat in the pews, those 10 Our Fathers were about as bad a legeo as any words could ever get. Uh, they meant absolutely nothing to me. I looked at the Our Father as a punishment, and so I would just plow through the 10 Our Fathers as fast as I could uh, and then get on with uh, the business that I had planned for whatever that day was. Uh, so I prayed those prayers uh, without any realization of the depth of meaning that these verses hold. And so we can pray very meaningful prayers like the Lord's Prayer, but if we do it uh, repetitiously, uh, without thinking about the words and the meaning, uh, we're really missing the whole point. Uh, if we repeat these prayers flippantly, uh, without uh, really attributing to God the glory that he deserves, uh, then we're really not praying the way Jesus wants us to. And that's why a lot of churches choose not to have a very liturgical kind of format because sometimes liturgy, when we repeat it over and over again, it can lose its thought and meaning. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for liturgy in church. I think that, that uh, if we are praying these prayers with meaning and thought and feeling, then yeah, there's great value to these things. But the danger is that they become uh, thoughtless. We just repeat them without thinking about what they mean, uh, without uh, engaging our whole hearts and minds. So God is certainly not impressed by the length or the eloquence of prayers. We know that. But God is concerned. He does care about the attitude of our hearts as we pray these prayers. And so Jesus said, do not be like them. And he was referring to the scribes and Pharisees who would stand up with loud and long prayers to be noticed and to the Gentiles who would pray these repetitious prayers, but uh, they didn't have any value or meaning at all. And they prayed these prayers to a God who didn't exist, but they didn't know them or know that God or understand that God or, or the God who, of the universe, the true God who wants to hear their prayers. And so uh, Jesus was coming to correct the, the attitudes that they had. So we see that we're not supposed to have this meaningless repetition. But in verse 8, uh, Jesus kind of changes course here, and he says, your father knows what you need before we ask him. And that's the reason why we don't pray these meaningless and empty prayers, because God already knows what we need. He just wants us to engage in relationship with him. The, the God who we worship, he knows us intimately, and he's not some far-off God who has no time for us. Uh, can you imagine uh, that the God of the universe knows the need of every one of the nearly 8 billion people who are living on this planet right now. That's staggering when you think about that. But if he knows what we need before we ask him, then why do we have to pray to him? Why, don't we why doesn't he just give us what he knows that we need? 
Well, the answer is that when we pray, we're not giving God information that he doesn't have, right? We know that God is omniscient. He knows everything there is to know. So it's not to give him information. It's because he wants to have a relationship with us. He knows if we're not feeling well or uh, if we have a financial need or if our kids are wayward or whatever the case may be. Uh, That's not beyond God's knowledge. But he asks us to pray so that we might have a relationship with him. Like, we don't want to hear from our kids only when they call and say, Dad, I need money, right? That's not, that's, it's, I mean, it's nice to hear from them all the time, but we'd like to hear from them at times when they don't need money, uh, just so that we know that they want to have a relationship with us. And that's the way our relationship is with God. We don't want him to just hear from us when we have this pressing need. He wants to talk to us all the time. And so uh, he, we, don't, we don't talk to him to inform him of our needs, but most times we, we talk to him uh, to tell him that we recognize our need for him. And so that is glorifying to God. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to say yes to all of our prayers. We know that he doesn't answer all of our prayers immediately. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Uh, and we trust that it's for our good or for some greater purpose that he's trying to accomplish uh, in the long run. But God knows our need, and he wants us to ask him. Now, I want us just to take a step back and and think about the disciples. As they watched Jesus live his life for the three-plus years or whatever that they were with him, uh, he would get up early in the morning, and he would go up on the mountainside, and he would pray for hours. Other times, he would spend the entire night in the mountainside, praying to the Lord. And they were probably thinking, what is he praying about hour after hour up there? Doesn't he run out of things to pray about? Or how can this man function without sleep? He never seems to need sleep. Uh, And I think as time went on, as they they realized who he was, uh, Jesus said he was was God in the flesh. And uh, Peter confessed it at one point in time. And they began to have this idea that maybe Jesus was more than just a man. And I wonder if they thought, well, if he is God and he prays, how much more do I need to pray? I'm sure that crossed their mind. Or maybe his prayer life is related to the holy life that he lives. Maybe there's a connection between these two things. And so when we come to this, uh, the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel in chapter 11, at that point, the disciples ask Jesus, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, Matthew doesn't include that here. Matthew just jumps right into uh, saying, right after he talks about the ignorant Gentiles and the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, he says, this then is how you should pray. And then he gave them the Lord's Prayer. So we'll talk about the Lord's Prayer, but before we dive into that, I just want us to make a couple of quick observations about the Lord's Prayer uh, before we talk about it. And the first one is this, that Probably more properly, it should be called the disciples' prayer because uh, this was a prayer that, the, that Jesus gave to his disciples that they should pray this prayer. It wasn't a, a, a prayer that Jesus would pray. I think probably the Lord's prayer would more properly be found in John chapter 17 where Jesus prays for his disciples and prays for uh, those who would believe it uh, because of his disciples. I think that's more appropriately the Lord's prayer. I would call this the disciples' prayer. Second thing is that Uh, The Lord's Prayer is how we should pray, not necessarily what we should pray, right? He's not saying you have to say these exact words. He's kind of giving us a model or a skeleton of what our proper prayer should look like. And of course, we can put meat on the skeleton of this prayer. We can add meat. We can change the meat depending on what our personal needs happen to be at the time. Uh, But this is what our prayer uh, should model because this prayer really contains 
anything that we can think of that we would need to pray about. And the third observation that I want us to see is that uh, the Lord's Prayer has an order and a structure to it that are very important. <clears throat> it begins with an invocation. First, we call on the name of the Lord. And then the prayer has three petitions that are all asking something about God's glory being done. And then after those three petitions, then we have these three petitions for our personal needs. And so this is important uh, because, as I say, this prayer is a model that we're supposed to follow. And so Jesus is teaching us that the model is to invoke the name of God with reverence and with awe, and then to ask for God's will to be done, and then only then do we change our concerns to what our will is and to our own pressing needs. So as we dive into the prayer then, let's start by looking at the invocation, and that's contained in verse 9. And it says, Our Father who is in heaven. And I want us to notice that it says, Our Father not my father. And that tells us that the prayer is to be prayed corporately, together, uh, as a body, uh, by all the people who can rightly call God Father. It also tells us that we pray in harmony with all other believers who can call God Father. And it's right for us to address God as our Father because he's all of our Father. Everyone here and all believers in the world can address him as our Father. We're not alone in being able to call him Father. And even, as, even when we pray alone by ourselves in secret as Jesus told us to, we still pray our Father because we're in harmony with the rest of the body of believers, his church. And so it's our Father. But on the other hand, not everyone is able to call him Father. Father is a term of familiarity. It's a term used by someone to, who knows him. And so it's a term that can only be used by Christians. Only a true child of faith can say that God is his Father. And the only way to be a true child of faith is to believe that Jesus Christ is his son who died on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven and that he rose again. And so a true child of God recognizes his own sinfulness and he calls out to Jesus to save him from his sin. And he repents of his sin and he becomes a member of the family of God and he is a child of God and we can call him father. The unbelieving world cannot call him father. And I want to, I want to show us uh, this principle just by a few scripture verses so that we'll see the distinguishment between uh, believers and uh, the rest of the world. John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even those to believe in, who believe in his name. John 17, 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And finally, 1 John uh, 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So I want us to see the distinction here. There's an us, and there's the world. Us are Christians and, and believers. We're called children of God. We receive great love. Now, the rest of the world does receive love. Uh, God causes his sun to rise and his rain to fall on the evil and the good, as we saw last week. But God has a special relationship with his own children, and only we can call him Father. And so our Father, that term, is full 
of meaning. It separates us from the unbelievers uh, and, and uh, makes us his children as we speak to him. So those two words carry a lot of meaning. And then we see who is in heaven. First we see we acknowledge God's transcendence. When we say God who is in heaven, the, the word is actually plural there, it's in the heavens. Uh, he dwells far beyond what we could ever comprehend. And so transcendence is just a fancy theological word that means his, his otherworldliness, his complete separateness, uh, his holiness from anything that we could ever be. He is not part of his creation like the sun and the moon and the stars like pagans believe. Uh, he's beyond creation. He's all that we could, beyond all that we could ever comprehend and he dwells in unapproachable light. This is our God who is transcendent, who dwells in the heavens. But at the same time, our God is imminent. Imminent is another fancy theological word that means even though he's apart from his creation, he dwells within it, and so he's with us right now, uh, even though he's beyond it. And so how awesome that the creator of the universe who dwells in this unapproachable light, who lives in dimensions beyond what we could ever comprehend, wants to have a relationship with us, his creatures. That's phenomenal when you think about that. And so he wants to hear our prayers. And so this is the invocation. If we invoke God like this, uh, then we, uh, we show our humility. We put God in his proper place. We put ourselves in our proper place. We exalt him. We humble ourselves when we invoke God that way. Now, when we speak to each other, I think it's interesting now, in this day of social media and texting and emails, uh, when I get an email, normally uh, there's no, good morning, Bob, I hope you're having a good day today, and then uh, into the text of the email, normally it's just, I need this, could you get this done for me, right? That's, that's the way emails and texts go this day, and uh, you know, I'm not a very formal guy, I don't need you to send me a greeting when you start an email to me, but uh, I just think it's interesting that, that sometimes we address God uh, that way, like we might address each other, and, and the, the point of this invocation is to show us that when we address God, there has to be some level of formality and reverence and awe when we, become, or when we come before a holy God uh, and, and, and speak to him. He wants to speak to us, but yet uh, it's necessary that we speak to him recognizing who he is. So I want us to come to uh, a healthy knowledge of who he is and approach him that way. The, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and, and approaching him the right way, uh, this way, is a pretty good start. And so uh, do we know him this way? Do we know him as this transcendent yet imminent God who loves us and wants to hear our prayers? And do we address him this way, uh, giving him the respect, reverence, honor, and awe that he is due? Uh, so that's the invocation. And then the three petitions that follow next are, are prayers for the glory of God, and we see them in the second half of verse 9 through verse 10. The first one is this, hallowed be your name. The word hallow comes from the Greek word hagiatso, uh, which means uh, holy, uh, reverent, set apart, uh, completely other. It's the same Greek word that the word sanctify comes from. So when we say be sanctified, that means to be set apart, uh, to be holy, to be uh, given to a particular purpose that God has for us. So it means when we're talking about God that we set him apart, we treat him as holy, otherworldly, completely different uh, from how we are. And that's how we want to treat him. We want to reverence his name. And so our prayer is that not only we as believers would, would reverence and hallow his name like that, but we want the whole world to hallow his name like that. When we call on God, we need to recognize that you know, God loves us and he's our friend, but 
He's not our bro, and he's not our buddy. He's holy God, and so we need to address him as so, and we hallow his name because he's holy God. But when we say, hallowed be your name, we're not only asking that believers would hallow his name, but we want the unbelieving world to hallow his name too, and how the world would be changed uh, if the world hallowed his name as it should. And believers, it's our job to lead the way. When we pray and we ask that the name of the Lord be hallowed, well, we need to commit to living a life that hallows his name. And so we do that, as we've learned already in the past few months studying the Sermon on the Mount, we do this by uh, following the Beatitudes. We, we are poor in spirit, we mourn our sin, we're meek, we are uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are pure in spirit, uh, we, we are peacemakers and we're merciful. All of these things are things that show that we are children of God and that we do hallow his name. And so we're to be salt and light to this world that needs it. And we pray that as a result of how we live out our lives, that the world would hallow his name the way it should. And we should have great passion and long for the day that the whole world would recognize God for who he is and reverence his holy name. So we hallow his name. And the second petition is that we ask that his kingdom come. Now, there's a lot of meaning in these uh, three words. There's an already sense to this verse, your kingdom come. Jesus has already come, and he's already ushered in his kingdom in one sense, in the sense that he's already come. And he's also left us with the Holy Spirit to those who believe. And so the kingdom grows in us as the Holy Spirit does his work in us and as we do our work in other believers. So we have this this already aspect to the, the kingdom coming and we uh, exist now as his church. But then there's also this not yet aspect to his coming. And so before he comes, we are praying that uh, one by one, as we as believers, as the church go out and speak to the unbelieving world, that they would come to a saving knowledge of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his kingdom would grow in individuals, one person at a time. And then there's also this when he comes aspect that hasn't yet been fulfilled. When Jesus comes again, uh, he's going to put an end to the evil in the world and he's going to sit on his throne. And a Christian can long for that day when Jesus comes again. We can pray this prayer with, with great passion and, and desire because we don't fear Jesus is coming again. He's coming with judgment for some, but he's not coming with judgment for us because we have believed in the name of his son and we believe that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so when Jesus comes, that's gonna be a time of great celebration for us. And so we ask for the kingdom to, become, to come because we know we've been forgiven by his blood. And then there's this third petition that says, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this petition really flows right from the previous position, uh, petition. When his kingdom comes, of course, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we live in the time that is known as the time of the ruler of this world, and that's Satan. And God has allowed Satan to have a certain amount of freedom on earth at this particular time. Uh, in heaven, of course, God's rule is done perfectly, but on earth, Satan has been given uh, this freedom, and, and God has a plan and a program for dealing with sin and death and Satan. But for the time being, it's not his desire that Satan should be vanquished just quite yet. But when, his will, when he comes, his will will be done, and all unbelievers and Satan and all demons and uh, everyone else who is opposed to his kingdom will be cast out of his kingdom. But for now, 
satanic opposition uh, on the earth is great. Do you need to see the news from any day to know that that is true, right? Satan is alive and well in the world today. And if that wasn't true, if there was no satanic opposition to God, then uh, this prayer would not be necessary. Of course, God can crush Satan under his feet any time that he wants to. And so the prayer is that, that God would crush Satan under his feet and then that he would have the same unopposed dominion on earth today as he does in heaven today. But in the meantime, again, it's our obligation to, to help God's will be done on earth. We have to go out and do the things that uh, Jesus has commanded us to do in the Beatitudes and throughout the Bible. And the more we do the will of God who is in heaven, the more people will see our good deeds and glorify him and perhaps become believers themselves. And in that way, the kingdom grows and in that way, the will of God is done. So are we doing his will? Are we praying for his will to be done? Or are we praying for our will to be done? We need to ask ourselves this question. So at this point, we might ask, uh, does God always require this level of formality? Do we always have to do exactly what it says in the prayer here? Uh, I think that when we're in crisis mode, uh, it's okay to just say to God, please help. Uh, I think it's okay when we go throughout our day to pray these popcorn prayers as they're known, uh, God, I, I thank you for this, and God, I could use this, and God, would you help me with this? Uh, I think that's okay. God wants to hear from us all the time. Uh, I don't think we necessarily have to go through all these formalities all the time, because any time you insist on all formality all the time, something has the danger of becoming legalism, and we become, again, like the scribes and Pharisees, by insisting that it has to be done this way all the time. Again, this is a model that Jesus wanted us to pray. And remember, from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we've been saying that he wants to correct the wrong attitudes that the scribes and Pharisees had and were teaching about whatever the topic was for that week. And so prayer is no different. He wants to correct the wrong attitudes that they had. And so these petitions show us that unlike the scribes and Pharisees who were focused on themselves and getting their own glory, and unlike the pagans who are just shouting prayers to an unknown, uh, non-existent God, uh, these petitions that, that Jesus said show the proper attitude that we're supposed to have when we come before God. We revere him. We treat him as holy, set apart. We hallow his name. The point is that we always remember who God is and that we pray that his will be done and recognize that his will being done is more important than our will being done. So if we keep those things in mind, we'll, we'll not have to have this, this legalism in our mind. This is, this is a model, the way Jesus wants us to pray, the way he wants us to approach holy God, not like the scribes and Pharisees, not like the pagans, but like people who know him uh, and treat him with reverence. So that's the invocation, and that's the first three petitions. Now, let's talk about prayer for personal needs. And the first prayer that we see is in verse 11, and that is for our provision. It says, give us this day our daily bread. So we notice the change of pronoun here. In the first uh, three petitions, it was your, and now the petition, the pronoun has changed to our. And so we're talking now about our personal needs. It shifts from God's glory to what we need. Now, bread here is a symbol of all of our personal needs. It's the bare necessities of life that we have to have. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need clothing, and bread is a symbol of that. But notice that we are completely dependent on God for even the least provisions, just daily bread, uh, and everything beyond that, obviously, we are dependent on for God. 
You remember that the Israelites who wandered in the desert for 40 years had to gather manna daily for their sustenance and for their survival. And if they gathered more than the day's supply of manna, the excess, that would spoil, it would rot because it was more than they needed for that day. Except for one time a week when they had to gather for two days so that they would not have to gather on the Sabbath. Then the manna would last for two days. It would not spoil on the second day. And so week after week, day after day, for 40 years, God was teaching these Israelites dependence on him daily for their provision. And he wants us to do the same. Now, we pray for daily necessities because we recognize that God is the one who provides these things that we need. So in the morning, we ask for today's necessities, and at night, maybe we ask for tomorrow's necessities. But, you know, America's a pretty wealthy country, right? We're not like a lot of the rest of the world that lives very much hand-to-mouth and a lot of poverty that exists in the world. Some of it exists here, but not to the degree it exists in the rest of the world. Uh, in America, we pray that we don't outlive our money, right? That's, that's a nice problem to have for some of us. Uh, others of us, we worry about retirement, we worry about pensions, we worry about 401ks and all kinds of things like that. And uh, the Israelites didn't have such things. Those things didn't exist. Uh, the average guy in Israel was a day laborer and he would work, it's Monday, I work Monday and after Monday's over, I get a denarius and I work Tuesday and after Tuesday's done, I get a denarius. Well, if there's no work on Wednesday, I get no denarius on Wednesday. And so this prayer, give us our daily bread, had a whole lot more meaning to people who were used to living very much hand to mouth like the Israelites were. And so we often choose to worry about things that are happening way beyond today and tomorrow and what's gonna happen in 10 years, 20 years. Uh, we worry about those things, but God wants us just to focus on today. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, we'll see uh, in a couple of weeks when we get to the end of chapter six, uh, that he says that tomorrow has enough trouble of its own, right? Worry about today and let God take care of you today. I have a friend of mine who used to say, uh, God will either choose to feed you or he won't. Uh, and it's really very simple, right? When you look at it that way, if God is sovereign, we trust God that he will feed us today. So uh, we need to ask ourselves if we trust God's provision. So that's the prayer for uh, God's provision. The next is a prayer for purification. And we see this uh, in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, as uh, we were reading the prayer earlier, we heard a lot of different translations, right? We heard debts, we heard trespasses. Uh, really, the, the word is properly translated debts in the sense that this word is, uh, it, it indicates financial obligation to someone. Uh, the reason that it's called trespasses in some translations is because in Luke chapter 11, the word used is sins. And so debt is actually a, uh, an obligation owed to God or a trespass owed against God and, or, or trespass done against God. So you can see why the word trespass is used in some translations. I think debt is more proper because it's the metaphor of, of owing a financial obligation. But when we think about this, uh, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I want us to understand that Jesus is not talking here about forgive us our sins in a salvation sense, in a uh, I'm confessing Jesus as Lord for first time and I'm, I'm justified and I'm saved positionally uh, and I'm in right standing with Jesus. Uh, 
he's preaching to believers, remember that. So he's not talking about that kind of forgiving our sins. He's talking about forgiveness of sins after we have sinned, after we have been saved. And so this is a daily thing, just like we're praying for daily provision, we're praying for daily purification of our sins. Uh, remember that back in John 13, uh, this is the foot washing episode. Remember when uh, Jesus was washing everyone's feet and Jesus came to Peter and Peter said, Lord, you shall not wash my feet. And Peter said, and uh, Jesus said, if uh, I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Peter said, well, then Lord, not wash not only my feet, but all of me. And then Jesus said, well, uh, anyone who has been bathed does not need a bath. So what he's referencing there is bathed in the sense of he's justified, he's saved. He doesn't need a full bath but I do need to wash your feet because you do sin daily, and so I need to cleanse your feet. And so the cleansing of the feet is the, is the representation of the daily sin that we do, and that's what Jesus was referencing here. So we, we confess our sin daily so that we maintain our fellowship with Jesus. And so uh, you'll all know 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, a verse which is written to believers, and we see that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is sin that's happened after we have been cleansed of our sin in a positional sense. This is daily sin that we're talking about that helps us to maintain our fellowship with God. And so we are asking daily for him to cleanse us of our sins that we commit against him even after we are saved. And so we need to do that. But not only that, we need to forgive others too. And this is the only petition of the six where Jesus actually expounded on uh, the, uh, the petition that he makes. And here's what he said in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, that's a difficult verse. Uh, are, is Jesus saying that if we don't forgive others that he will withdraw his forgiveness from us or, or does it mean that we're not saved at all? It, it's kind of a scary verse when you think about it. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, his forgiveness is not conditional on whether we forgive others, but it's evidence about whether we have in fact been saved ourselves. Uh, when we think about it, when we recognize how much we have been forgiven, if we truly know that, if we truly understand that, when somebody you know, does some minor infraction to us, we ought to be able to say very easily, I forgive you, brother, for that. If we can't do that, if somebody has insulted us and we can't forgive that sin, then that's kind of evidence that we have not recognized how much we have been forgiven and perhaps evidence that we're not saved at all. So we need to ask ourselves, do we forgive others when they trespass against us. That's proof that we have been forgiven uh, by God himself for the forgiveness uh, of our, our sins, and it's proof that we've understood what grace really means. So that's the purification that he was talking about. And then the final petition is a petition for protection. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is also a difficult request because we know that God doesn't lead anyone into temptation, right? The Bible tells us that. Uh, so why do we have to pray this prayer? Well, remember that even though God doesn't directly lead us into temptation, he does allow Satan to tempt us. And he does test us from time to time. Surely uh, Abraham was tested when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. 
So God may test us uh, to see how loyal we will be to him, uh, and he may allow Satan to tempt us, but when Satan tempts us, it's not for our good, like God's testing is. When Satan tempts us, it's for our destruction. And so we're asking God not so much to spare us from his testing, which ultimately would be for our good, but we are asking him uh, to have Satan and that God would not allow Satan to lead us into situations where we are likely to fall. And now the other side of the coin is that uh, we're asking that we would not be uh, led into temptation. Now we're asking that we also be delivered from evil. The Greek literally says the evil. So your translation may say the evil one, meaning Satan, or your translation may say evil, which means evil in general, which may incorporate uh, difference, uh, different uh, types of evil than, than uh, what Satan brings. There's other evil in the world as well. Uh, but when we're talking about that, the first petition is that we would not be led into temptation. But secondly, if we should happen to fall into temptation, then this is a petition for rescue, that God would deliver us, that he would rescue us from the evil that we have fallen into uh, by uh, falling uh, prey to Satan's temptation. And so this prayer really shows our humility. It shows that we recognize that we have no ability to stand against Satan on our own. We are not powerful enough to resist his schemes. And it shows that we are fully dependent on God for his protection and for his rescue if we stumble and fall. So we could, we could boil this final petition down into a few statements. I think we could say, uh, never boast in your own strength. Uh, never uh, voluntarily uh, f- uh, follow temptation where it might lead. Uh, pray against Satan's temptation. Pray for strength in times of testing and pray for rescue if we should fall into the temptations and the traps that Satan has set for us. So that's the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we think about, you know, this is a great prayer. It's a model prayer. Uh, What do we do with this prayer? Do we pray it every day? Do we pray it every week? Uh, I think that what we have to recognize, again, is that this is a model prayer and that Jesus was trying to teach them uh, how to pray so that their prayers would not become empty phrases and meaningless repetitions. So I have an exercise for us, a way that we can do the same thing to prevent our prayers from becoming empty phrases and meaningless repetition. Because any prayer that we uh, memorize and then repeat, 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 uh, really runs the risk of becoming stale. So I want us to look at the invocation, look at the three prayers that are directed to the glory of God and the three prayers that are for our needs, and then write an outline for how we're going to pray in the future. And this is something that you can use for the rest of your life if you're willing to do this exercise. The outline is the skeleton of the prayer. And like I said earlier, you can always add meat, take away meat to the bones of this skeleton depending on what your needs happen to be at that time. But this is how I did it. It might look something like this when you do it. When we do our invocation, we say, Our Father who art in heaven, you could say in your own words, just call on the name of the Lord in reverence and awe, however that might look to you, using whatever words you choose to do. And then the petitions, hallowed be your name. Just remember who God is in all his splendor and all his wonder and magnify and exalt the name of the Lord and his son and remember that you are his humble servant. So we hallow his name. And the next We say, your kingdom come. What does that mean? In your own words, just pray that the Lord's kingdom be magnified on earth in our hearts as we go and evangelize to other believers 
uh, or to unbelievers, as, as we pray that the kingdom grows through other believers, pray that the Lord Jesus would come soon and establish his kingdom on earth. And then the third one, pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, just ask that God's work be glorified, that he would be magnified on heaven by believers doing God's will, and that God would crush satanic opposition to his program, and that the earth would look like heaven looks today, where God's will is done without opposition. And then the three petitions for our own particular need. This would be the place where we pray for our own needs and the needs of others. So if you have a prayer list, that's great. You can pray them here. These are the needs. Pray that the Lord would always continue to provide as he always has in the past and help us to worry not about the things that we can't control, but to trust God with all outcomes. And we can pray that prayer for ourselves and for others. Forgive us our debts. This is where we pray for restored fellowship with God. When we've sinned against him, we come to him in a prayer of confession and restore our fellowship with him. And we can do this with others too. If we know we've sinned against someone else, this would be the time uh, where we could think about how we're going to approach that person and uh, gain restoration with that person. We recognize that we sin daily. We remember to ask the Lord for forgiveness and we thank him that even though we still sin, we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus and we know for certainty that our eternity in heaven is secure. And we thank him that by confession of our sin, he restores our fellowship with him and we pray that the Holy Spirit, by, the, by his power, that we would forgive others as well. And finally, that he would lead us not into, te into temptation. This is where we pray for protection against Satan and the evil in the world. We pray that we would be fully dependent on God, that we would never uh, stray from God and think that we can handle this particular thing on our own. We don't need God for this. We'd never be that proud to think that we can stand against Satan by ourselves. And we pray that we would endure God's testing for our benefit. So it's a very simple outline and a model that you could follow. Uh, that I can follow every time that I pray. And I pray that it's not meaningless repetition. And that's the idea of it, because we're trying to get our hearts and minds fully engaged with God every time that we pray. And it helps us to drift off into whatever the cares of the day happen to be, because we're following something that we've developed, an outline that we can use. And so I hope that this prayer helps you. Uh, and I hope that this prayer would be meaningful to you. It would help you communicate with God uh, that it would be pleasing to him. A prayer is, uh, it, it's our lifeline to God. And, and if we don't exercise it, well, we don't have any access to the power source. And so it's crazy for Christians to call themselves Christians and yet not pray. So I pray that your prayers never become empty and meaningless. And I pray that this prayer will always glorify God and deepen our relationship with him. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible prayer, uh, so deep, Lord, and uh, how often we have prayed it in the past so that we know it by heart, but Lord, has it meant to us what it actually means to you? Lord, have we, have we used this model prayer uh, so that you would be glorified, Lord, and that you would be hallowed, and that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, I pray we look at this Lord's Prayer with new meaning today, uh, that we see things in it that we've never seen before, Lord, that we recognize that this prayer is not something just to be rattled off, but it would be something that we would think about deeply, Lord, and that we would use it for your glory, Lord, and for your honor. Until Jesus comes again, we pray in his name. Amen.